Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you are listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about recent developments in Lebanon's economic depression. We're going to talk about Turkey's expansionism and what it's going to mean for it and its neighbors. And, of course, we can't not talk about the Taliban. All that and more, coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid-fire news. We have a fat episode today. But we're going to start things off by talking about some large fires in Jerusalem, which have um, caused the evacuation of nearby residencies. Uh, Lots of fires recently. We have fires in Turkey, fires in Greece, fires in Mexico, Spain, fires in California. Um, They have those every year. Bad uh, forest management policy on their part, but the other ones are more abnormal. And now, Israel. Very interesting. And while we're still on the topic of natural disasters, uh, if fires in Turkey weren't enough, they now have floods in northern Turkey, which have caused now a confirmed 64 deaths. Meanwhile, a pro-Russian Ukrainian mayor was found dead in his home um, with gunshot wounds. So presumably it's a suicide, and maybe it isn't. We'll we'll just have to wait and see on that. Why do we have to wait and see on that? Well, because he's a part of the pro-Russian opposition to the Ukrainian government, and Russia and Ukraine are not exactly on speaking terms right now. So we'll just have to wait and see if this was um, a suicide. Or maybe it was a homicide. Well, we'll find out eventually. Assuming I even find the story when that comes up. Or maybe this is just exactly what it looks like. But anyway, we have 10,000 fleeing violence in Cameroon. And they've left for Chad. Uh, Lots of violence in the sub-Saharan Africa. We talked about some secessionist movements in Nigeria that the country is dealing with. And there's... The obvious, well, the more infamous Tigray Rebellion in Ethiopia going on right now, um, which is, I believe, is going to be exploited by a certain Egypt in the not-too-distant future against the Ethiopian government. And we'll get sort of into that in a minute. And in a minute, I mean when we get into the meat. But while we're still in Africa, though, there have been militants threatening to contaminate and sabotage the water supplies in Libya while they have demanded the release of a jailed official. Um, Libya, in response to this, shut down large amounts of its own water supplies to keep them from even being able to do that, Um, and the obvious effect of that is people can't get water. So, we might see a humanitarian crisis there on top of the civil war in Libya, which may or may not lead to more Turkish influence there. 
or maybe even more outsiders getting involved. Austria, in light of the massive wave of um, refugees leaving Afghanistan as the war was coming to a close, um, Austria has vowed to keep its strict immigration laws and even for Afghans should their asylum claims fail. They will be sent back home. Um, they've gotten sort of a tongue lashing from other news outlets who claim that they're cruel. But um, uh, countries have the right to police their own borders. I mean, that's Turkey's doing it. Tajikistan's doing it. Uzbekistan's doing it. Pakistan's doing it. I'm pretty sure Iran is doing it, too. They have a long border with Afghanistan as well. But um, interesting how Austria is the one that catches the flack for doing this. Um, very interesting, very interesting. Um, the U.S., though, is set to impose more sanctions against Iran. Um, these sanctions now targeting those who have been implicated in an oil smuggling accusation. Pakistan has received the first shipments from a Chinese-made COVID vaccine. And the while we're talking about China now, the Chinese authorities say, while we're talking about China and vaccines, the Chinese authorities say that 777 million have been vaccinated. And to China's north, their good old pal, Russia, the, a Russian hypersonic technologies researcher has been detained on charges of treason. So he could be facing a literal execution for that. At least that's the crime for treason in America. I don't know what the crime for treason is in Russia. I'd imagine it's something similar, though. Maybe even life in jail. But um, across the Atlantic, though, Venezuela's government and its government opposition parties have met in Mexico last week, and this meeting included the leaders of these two sides, Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela right now, and the opposition leader, Juan Guaido, um, who has claimed that Maduro won on fraud during the last election and claims to be himself the legitimate president. That is, Juan Guaido claims to be the legitimate president, while Nicolas Maduro is in power as the president. So, really stark views on who is in charge here. Um, but they've met in Mexico. And major dialogues between the two are set to begin next month. And we'll have to see where those go. Because the country is in some dire straits and is on the verge of civil war there's lots of civil unrest in venezuela uh, and it's been that way for a while but at this point with the claims of election fraud you had it sort of go up and sort of go up a notch to where it was on the verge of not just civil strife but civil war but these two sides are meeting now so that can do one of two things um Generally speaking, it can either lower the tensions as they sort of come to an agreement or they have a falling out and things get worse as now at that point, the leadership wants nothing to do with the other. So could be good. It could be bad. But that 
is the rapid fire news and now we get into the meat in just a minute alrighty folks let's get into the meat of this I gotta say though before we begin when I sat down to record today's episode I couldn't help but say to myself man I love my job we got some spicy things to talk about today especially at the end when we cover the big boy and you'll if you you know you probably already know what the big boy is I kind of gave it away in the preamble but uh yeah we'll be we'll be talking about the big boy and the evolution that it has undergone but um let's let's get into it let's get into this we'll start by talking about Lebanon so the Lebanese central bank is set on ending the subsidies on fuel that were in place before and this is because the country is now in an economic crisis and they probably can't afford to pay for that and they probably don't want to just print money like a certain central bank is doing cough cough the fed maybe we can learn a lesson or two but the military in light of this has stepped in to seize control of gas stations and fuel supplies in the country as panicked citizens were and were accused of hoarding as much gas as they could get their hands on uh, which itself the combination of the military stepping in and the people panicking and panic buying um, has caused the situation to worsen and this all comes after the country's central bank head was caught up in corruption allegations which are currently unresolved so there's a mess as you can see a very big mess a mess that Lebanon is trying to climb its way out of but um, the, the hole just keeps getting deep, deeper and deeper um, they have though a Lebanese Hezbollah group has announced that they'll be importing fuels such as gasoline and diesel from Iran of all countries huh it's almost as if it's almost as if Lebanon was within Iran's sphere of influence I mean Iran is very 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 clearly not the only country in this region with some oil this region is infamous for its amount of oil Iraq has oil Iraq has oil. Syria has a little bit of oil. It's currently under occupation right now by U.S. troops, but they have a little bit of oil. Turkey has a little bit of oil. Arabia, their claim to fame is their oil. The United Arab Emirates, their claim to fame is oil. Kuwait, tiny Kuwait has oil. Even, I believe even Qatar has a little bit of oil. Everybody has oil here. Every single one. Azerbaijan isn't that far away. They have oil. Russia's not that far away. They have oil. Everybody has oil. And yet, Lebanon reaches out to Iran for fuel supplies, gasoline, and diesel. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Is it a, is it a vindication? Maybe, maybe not, but I, they had plenty of options. It's just very peculiar that they've chosen Iran, and I'll leave it there. <laughs> but um, they've decided to import gasoline and diesel from Iran to 
obviously alleviate the the well the mess all right i tried to come up with something witty but uh, we'll just settle on mess which is what it is they have fuel shortages and they're really really bad fuel shortages there's been power outages like on and off throughout the country due in large part to the lack of fuel because you know their power stations use the fuel they burn it to make energy so if you don't have fuel you not only are people not going to be able to drive their cars not only are certain products not able to be manufactured but you literally don't have energy it's a disaster that they're trying to get out of and i guess iran is more than happy to help but the interesting thing here though is that iran is now officially a part of the competition for influence in Lebanon, ironically due to the Lebanese themselves, rather than actions taken by the Iranian government. Now Iran has economic interests here in Lebanon um, beyond geostrategic or even political interests. They have economic interests now uh, in a country that's going through an economic crisis. So there's plenty of room for expansion and plenty of desperate people willing to say yes to anything you say. So the showdown is underway now between them and the front runner of this competition, that is France, who was very quick on the very, very quick on the foot. And they stepped in there. Provide they provided an economic aid plan. Well, not so much of an aid plan as much as it's an economic recovery plan for Lebanon to implement um, with small bits of aid from the French directly to sort of get them moving. And the, if I'm not mistaken, I talked about the Lebanese, how they went through a whole process to try to get a governing coalition because they, they had resigned, but they didn't have a proper replacement for all the resignations. But um, they put together a governing body specifically to implement this plan. Like, that was the unifying call to finally get people to run the country. Because they had all basically capitulated and said, we have no clue how to deal with this. So, a crisis in everything you would imagine from the word. But that's Lebanon, and things are heating up there. So I thought I'd put it in today's episode as the competition for influence has begun, as was speculated by me. Um, a lot of these speculations of mine sort of seem to come to pass, um, and a lot faster than I ever expected them to. Um, I didn't expect Russia to get a grip over Central Asia so fast, but they did. And now the battle for influence in Lebanon has officially begun just weeks after i brought it up the episode on the modern day spheres of influence has done excellently and now here we have the battle for spheres of influence where the it's getting a bit repetitive but the various spheres of influence are overlapping in lebanon and the battle for dominance there among the outside powers has begun, and we'll see what other new candidates may or may not involve themselves 
in the future to complicate the mess that Lebanon is already in. But at least they don't have to endure the plight that they're in alone. They will have help. So that's the plus side. The downside is they're going to be influenced from outsiders who are going to want things from them in return. So we'll see where that goes. But now we're going to talk about Lebanon's neighbor to their north, Turkey. You know, with the news uh, being preoccupied uh, throughout the entirety of the week um, with a certain group of people in a certain country that rhymes with Bafbanistan, <laughs> I've decided that I would take a moment to sort of inject this into the episode before we get to that big topic, the one that's going to be on everyone's minds today and probably for the rest of the week, maybe even the month, or a few months really, because it's pretty monumental, and we'll definitely continue to cover it in as we move forward, but in this little opportunity that I have found due to the, you know, the news cycle being eaten up by one story, which I already am going to cover after this, uh, I decided to inject this little bit into the episode. We're going to talk about Turkey. Because the other day, um, I was looking at this map on my wall. I, I got a nice little map. I taped it to the wall. It looks pretty. Not the the prettiest earth map but it's pretty and I like it but I was looking at Turkey and I had a whole little moment of speculation looking at that map it's a very strange habit of mine where I just look at a map and just go hmm what if this happens you know this could possibly happen this you know if they do this but um as I was going through the news for today's episode found a couple stories on Turkey Stories. Turkey and Pakistan are working to cooperate on controlling immigration waves, mainly those coming from Afghanistan. I brought up how Turkey, all of Afghanistan's neighbors are cracking down on the border, and yet Austria caught flack for doing the same, who isn't even a neighbor of Afghanistan. But um, they're cooperating with Pakistan to control the immigration. And on that note, I found it interesting how Turkey is now concerned about immigration and refugees and migrants um, now, as opposed to just, what, six years ago? I guess it's because they can't weaponize them against the EU anymore, not since the Greeks and the Bulgarians built a wall to keep them out. The migrants, I mean. Uh, which the EU very quietly approved of in the background. Um, and we've talked about Turkey and the baby steps that they were taking as they reasserted themselves on the international scene. Them cooperating with Pakistan is just one example. Um, they were even trying to insert themselves into Afghanistan. Um, they've, yeah, they, they've been doing a whole lot in the neighborhood. They've been trying to... They've been trying to drill for natural gas in the eastern Mediterranean. They got shut down by France for the time being. I have every belief that they'll be back at it again once their navy is built up. Um, so keep an eye out for that. I know I am. They've been trying to drill for gas in the eastern Mediterranean. They backed Azerbaijan in the Caucasus War. They, they're selling drones to Ukraine. 
they're openly backing the Palestinians against Israel, and they again they they're cooperating with Pakistan on the issues of immigration. They <clears throat> excuse me. They try to insert themselves into Afghanistan, where they wanted back a couple weeks ago, if you remember. There was a whole big hubbub about this major airbase, and the U.S. wanted to keep some troops to defend the airbase so that the embassy could be safe and there could be a route in and out of the country. And the various countries started offering up their ability to defend the airport. Ultimately, they were all shot down. But among the countries that wanted to defend the airport and offered up their military to do so was Turkey. They offered to do that. They offered to even, if I'm not mistaken, they offered to mediate the talks between the Taliban and the Afghan government. <clears throat> so they've been really, really active. And most recently, they even tried, they even advocated openly a two-state solution to the Cyprus question. That's what I'm calling it now. Hope you like my dramatic uh, single phrase summary of these major events going on in the modern day. But um, we know for Turkey that the ambition, at least of their president anyway, Erdogan, is to become a new Ottoman Empire. And while I was staring up at that poster of the world map that I have in my on the wall in my room... And while I was analyzing Turkey's region in the context of the things we've covered on the podcast and things that didn't make it into the podcast, but I've observed anyway, it's not that many. It's just, I felt I should clarify. But um, we know that Turkey wants to expand. Uh, but they've been checked, which means they've been stopped in their northeast by Russia. They were halted by the Greeks and Bulgarians in their northwest. And we know also that that means their only viable route for expansion then is southward. And we know that they can't expand southeast. That means going at Iran, which is too strong for them right now. Iran is the dominant regional power right now. Um... We'll, we'll see how long it takes other people to realize that, but they uh, that is the current position that Iran is in. If for no reason other than their sphere of influence. But we know that they can only go south from this point forward. Um, they can't go southeast, but they can go southwest into the Mediterranean, the eastern Mediterranean. Um, and... They're building up their navy, so we know that they haven't exactly given up on that. And we can observe, through Turkey's actions as well, that south is indeed the direction they have decided to go in. This is the one that they've invested themselves in the most. There was speculation among other people in the geopolit the geopolitical sphere. Oh goodness, the geopolitical sphere. Um, from people like George Friedman, he's popular, he's pretty good, um, even Peter Zion, uh, and a number of others who they were all were speculating on which direction would Turkey go in. They've been checked in both of their routes to the north, 
Russia has the Crimea, which means that Russia has de facto control over the Black Sea. Um, and they only have to exercise that control whenever they want to. But they've chosen to not. But if there's anything the Crimea incident between Britain and Russia showed us, it's that Russia could assert that authority with military force if they wanted to. And they could pose a major threat to anybody sailing through those waters if they wanted to, but they've chosen not to. But the Black Sea is Russian, the Caucasus is Russian, and the Balkans is EU territory slash NATO territory. So they can't go in either of those directions. They've been checked, they've been halted. Because um, we know being a part of the EU and NATO doesn't exactly save you from Turkey. France did that. So those two routes are closed, meaning they have to go south. They can't go out Iran, not yet, but they can go south into the heart of the Middle East, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. They can go southwest into the Mediterranean. So we can observe through the options available to them and their actions that this is the direction they've decided to go in. They've invested in the Eastern Mediterranean. They're invested in Libya. They're invested in Cyprus. We talked about it. They're invested in Palestine now. They attempted to involve themselves in Afghanistan. Uh, they have decided on South. They're cooperating with Pakistan. South is the way they're going to go. So with that in mind, that they've committed to the South, which ironically enough, are the lands of the old Ottoman Empire um, prior to the outbreak of World War I. One of the things, considering all that, that crossed my mind while speculating on Turkey's renewed attempt at empire was the challengers that it would have to overcome in order to achieve the heights that President Erdogan dreams of for his country. And who are those rivals? And what does the neighborhood look like? What is what is Turkey looking at here when we talk about expansion, when we talk about the rise of empire and the clash between spheres of influence and the consequences of being a winner and being a loser? In an era where things go the way they used to, where you would fight it out for what you wanted, rather than talk it out. What, is, what does it look like? What, is, what are we looking at here? So by land, we have the rivals, Iran, Arabia, Israel, and Egypt. Those are the rivals by land. And we're talking purely about to the south of Turkey, because they can't go north. By sea, the rivals are Greece and France. Now, I included those two, because they will likely continue to be active in denying Turkey dominance over the Eastern Mediterranean, and in France's case, going even further beyond that, by being active in Lebanon, Turkey's backyard. We know that Lebanon is in an economic depression, as we're going to analyze the neighborhood now. Those are the major players in the neighborhood, but Lebanon's an economic depression, Syria is coming fresh out of a civil war. Iraq is still recovering from two U.S. invasions 
and a civil war and the fight with ISIS. And they've basically surrendered themselves to being a part of the Iranian sphere of influence. They aren't even fighting that. So that's what it is. Iraq and Iran are now together rather than being opposed like they were in the 80s and 70s. So that's where it is now. Israel, one of the key, one of the big powers, um, militarily speaking, Israel is busy fighting Palestine. And the Saudis are in a period of retrenchment and reconciliation with former enemies. They're reaching out to Assad in Syria. They're reaching out to Iran of all countries. And they've stayed quiet on the Palestine issue, despite having been considered de facto allies with Israel and probably still are de facto allies with Israel, just in a way, way, way less vocal manner, which doesn't exactly do Israel any good, optics, optically speaking. They look isolated right now, and that's increasingly the picture um, being painted by the developments on the ground. So that's what we have there. We but and further to the south, I should say, Egypt is buying up weapons like a madman, um, likely preparing for armed conflict with Ethiopia over the Renaissance Dam. Um, saw, I believe it was a Caspian Report video on the subject. Really good with the geopolitics. So if you ever want more geopolitical candy to eat, you can watch some Caspian Report. Very, very good. And the video was very intriguing. Uh, and I brought this up constantly that I believe that that dam, something's going to happen to that dam. All right. I don't see Egypt surrendering their existence as a state because Ethiopia wanted to build a dam. I just don't see it. I see one day Egypt is going to wake up and choose conflict. <laughs> They're going to wake up and choose violence. And the entire world is going to see and they might catch Ethiopia slipping when they do it. Ethiopia is in a civil war right now. But, um, yeah, I mean, they're preparing for conflict with Ethiopia because the Renaissance Dam is going to dry up the Nile. And if they don't do something about it, they'll dry up with the Nile. And again, I don't see them going along with that. France is in a state of great unrest right now for a number of reasons. One of which, I guess the most recent of which, is the vaccine passports and those protests and riots keep getting bigger and they're gonna, at some point they're gonna debilitate France's ability to do anything beyond France and they're just gonna have to sit on what they have or even give up some things to reconsolidate their power but um, there's France and then Iran, which is the strongest of the local players, um, is actually doing pretty okay. So the, the biggest rival to Turkey in the south uh, has no super duper bad geostrategic risks to it right now. Um, it doesn't have un massive unrest at home. It doesn't have uh, minority populations in revolt. It doesn't have an economic crisis that's any worse than what the rest of the world is dealing with. So in relative terms, we talk about the relative power of nations. 
in relative terms, Iran is still stronger. As a matter of fact, in relative terms, they've gained strength over just la the last year. So Iran is the strongest. They're doing pretty okay. So at some point, Turkey, if it wants to expand into the south, they're going to have to face Iran. I brought up uh, towards the end of one of my previous episodes that I believed a showdown between Iran and Turkey would define the Middle East and the future of it. Because Turkey wants to move south, Iran, their sphere of influence runs straight along Turkey's southern border. Um, from Iran itself, Iraq, to Syria, to Lebanon, that is the core region of Iran's sphere of influence. That's literally the entirety of Turkey's southern and southeastern border. So at some point, Turkey's going to have to have a showdown with Iran. It could be through military conflict. It could be through diplomacy and economy. But there will be a showdown between those two. And at some point, if Turkey wants to expand into the Eastern Med, they're going to have to sh have a showdown with France, too. Um, because I don't believe the French are going to hand it over to the Turkish. Um, but I do believe Turkey will have strategic advantages in that conflict. The Iran battle will probably be a, a more fair fight um, than the naval battle that will determine whether or not Turkey gets access to the Eastern Med. But, um, yeah, that's... With the developments we've gone over, though, uh, it, that these challenges that Turkey would have to overcome might not be as difficult um, moving forward as it would have seemed just a couple months ago and even just almost a year ago. I mean, literally last year, I said Israel, I would have said, if I didn't say already, Israel would have been the biggest challenge to establishing this new Ottoman Empire because they're a nuclear-armed state with an advanced military uh, with that has modern equipment, and they're really good at fighting their neighbors, as they've demonstrated. Uh, but now look at them. Israel's bogged down in a Vietnam on their own soil, and they're being kicked while they're down by Iran. All their neighbors are allowing the people that they're fighting to fire rockets at them from the safety of those other countries. Syria, Lebanon, Jordan. Jordan got added to the Iranian sphere of influence that way. It's incredible how fast these developments have happened and how fast the tides turned against Israel. But that's the position Israel's in now. Iran is the dominant power. Israel got demoted super duper hard. And they're being kicked while they're down. What more can you say? Iran, on the contrary, through this same issue, they've consolidated their sphere of influence. Uh, and the vast majority of that consolidation came courtesy of the Palestine issue. And they're not going to give that up without a fight. France, though, France remains the biggest challenge to Turkey, um, specifically Turkey's Mediterranean ambitions. Iran is going to be the biggest challenge on land. France will be the biggest challenge in the Mediterranean. But again, Turkey's building up their navy. I see conflict. 
and when it'll happen i can't say but turkey's building up their navy they're building a new canal so they'll have they'll have exclusive rights to canal istanbul um they can lock they'll be able to lock that down at will and in the event that they decide to close the straits of boss the bosphorus strait they'll have their own alternative passage that other countries will have to ask turkey to move through that could be something that happens in the future uh i don't see it happening in the near future because canal istanbul isn't done but that'll be an option moving forward but an option that is exclusive to a turkey that has a proper navy and they're building one arabia uh further to their south um has arabia has for the time being removed itself from the equation again they're retrenching they're reassessing where they are and what they should be doing after retreating in a losing fashion from syria and yemen so they're probably just sitting on their hands re basically rethinking life is what they're doing um so arabia for now is out of the equation and if they would be brought back into the equation if anything i would see them siding against iran in the event of conflict between iran and turkey that's what i see them doing maybe they team up with iran but who knows iran's sphere of influence is large and i'm sure the arabians at some point in the near future are going to see this just as well as i do uh, and they're probably going to be very upset by it, especially considering that both of the countries that they've lost wars in are a part of that sphere of influence. The Houthis in Yemen and the Assad government in Syria. They're probably not going to be too keen on joining the coalition or being subjugated to and becoming a province of the Iranian sphere of influence. They're probably going to want to go their own direction. And that might mean siding with Turkey, which could have strategic advantages for Turkey. That would, that would completely bypass and outflank the Iranian sphere of influence just by way of where Arabia is on the map. But um, for now, though, Arabia is out of the equation. So what we have here is a neighborhood that has been crippled by developments within itself. And Turkey now has the opportunity to snowball into an empire. The destabilizing factors um, are there, and a lot of them are either going to take a long while to heal, or to a long while for the Iranian sphere of influence to sort of fall off the map. Those are going to take a while. And as far as the destabilizing factors in Israel and Egypt, those are only going to get worse over time. The demographics in Israel, where Muslims and the super-traditionalist Jews have higher birth rates than the more secular Jews, means that, the one, the coalition we saw between Jews and Arabs to form a government at all, to oust Benjamin Netanyahu, that won't be the last time we see that. And it also means that the fighting we're seeing between the Jewish Israelis and the Palestinians in Israel, that's not going to go end anytime soon. 
the fundamentalist super traditionalist Jews are going to make up larger and larger proportions of the Jewish population, they will not make compromise with the Arabs and the Muslims. And the Palestinians don't want to make compromise with them. So you have conflict that's going to breed more conflict because of the people who have the higher birth rates are dead set on conflict. So Israel, what we're seeing in Israel now is really probably just going to end up being a precursor to what we're going to see as being Israel, the norm for Israel in just, what, 10 years, 20 years? It's crazy to think about, but that's the might of demographics. Um, the destabilizing factor in Egypt is the Nile, the Nile question. Um, will there or will there not be enough water for Egypt as the Nile gets dammed up by Ethiopia? Egypt will either dry up with the Nile, because Ethiopia is filling up the reservoirs really, really fast, um, while they're in quote-unquote negotiations for a deal with Egypt. It seems that they're just in negotiations for the sake of saying that they're in negotiations. It doesn't seem like they're negotiating anything at all. They're just moving forward with the project um, while talking so that Egypt can't actually do anything without making themselves look like the aggressor and the unreasonable one um, to any outside observer who isn't who isn't as keen on the specifics of what people are doing. Um, but Egypt will either dry up with the Nile and suffer a tremendous fall in power and influence and probably population too, in economy, or they'll go to war. And if they go to war, Ethiopia is no slouch. Um, although they could catch Ethiopia slacking, you know. If, they, if Tigray is still in rebellion, if Ethiopia ends up at war with Egypt, that'll be a way into the country, number one. And number two, that'll preoccupy everyone fighting while being bogged down in the mountains of Ethiopia. That's going to be an international crisis. But in the event that that happens, and again, Egypt is buying up weapons like a madman, jets, bombs, and missiles, um, and lots of weapons, lots of weapons. Um, if that happens, they'll be preoccupied with a war against Ethiopia, too preoccupied to stand up to anything that Turkey might be doing in their north. And the north of Egypt being, you know, what is for Turkey the south, you know, Israel, Iraq, Iran, Jordan, Syria, that general area. They'll be too preoccupied to stand to Turkey. And this conflict is seemingly looming over, Eth not Ethiopia, well, Ethiopia, yeah, and Egypt, but um, that's what it seems like, and that... I am of the opinion something's going to happen to the dam. That's my opinion. And this conflict is going to play to Turkey's advantage more than anyone else. France and Iran, though, they remain, again, the principal opposition here. And this is where I see the greatest potential for Turkey itself to get drawn into armed conflict. Um, Iran has a large army. 
and Turkey has a modernizing army. France has a large and powerful fleet. Turkey has a modernizing and growing fleet. I see there being the greatest potential for armed conflict here. That doesn't mean that there will be, because what could happen is that Turkey outplays diplomatically Iran, and they wean off a whole bunch of these smaller countries from Iran and make them more dependent on Turkey uh, for either military or economy, one or the other. But um, they could do that and isolate Iran in similar fashion to how Iran has succeeded in isolating Israel by standing on the rights, the winning side of conflicts in the region and just slowly but surely expanding outwards through the goodwill of your neighbors. That's how Iran did it. Turkey could do the same, although they would need, you know, conflict for that to happen. But they could instigate that, potentially. So, there is the potential for them to do that. There's a potential for Iran to fuck up and ruin relations by overextending and being overly assertive with the members of their sphere. And then those, the countries within their sphere are going to look to other powers to give them options. And Turkey is going to be right there. So there's options there. And as far as the Eastern Mediterranean goes, if Turkey has a strong enough naval presence that they choose to bring to bear, they could potentially scare off the French who may be adverse to getting into a war. At least for the time being, but that would be the one incident Turkey would need to sort of stand their ground on to win in practice the rights to excavate and extract the natural gases in the eastern Mediterranean. And from that point onwards, they would have facts on the ground, or well, facts on the water, I should say, that you would have to start a war with them to remove. And at that point, Turkey's not the aggressor, you're the aggressor. But again, that those are the peaceful alternatives where you use strength as a leverage point. But that can also go very, very wrong, and you could end up shooting at each other. You could end up in a shooting war with France, but France would be farther from home. The French Navy would be farther from home, and their assets for their air force would be farther from home than Turkey's. Turkey, if necessary, could even use Libya as a base for their air, their airplanes and their ships, so that the trip to the battle space is shorter and they can lock off any French incursion into the space that they seek to dominate. And they, you know, probably invade a couple of Greek islands while they were at it, too. You know what I mean? Maybe Cyprus just uh, vanishes, you know, after, you know, just, just very quietly, just off into the night. Who knows? Because um, conflicts like that can expand very easily. And I don't imagine... Well, I can imagine Greece not wanting to get drawn in, but if France is at war and Greece looks like, well, no, I mean, if Turkey looks like they're going to win, well, Greece might throw their hat into the lot, they might throw their hat into the ring uh, and try to stop Turkey, because Turkey dominating the region means Greece is going to get bullied. 
And the Greeks are very aware of that. So, potential for armed conflict in the eastern Mediterranean, potential for armed conflict in the desert flats of Iraq and Syria, and even Lebanon. Lebanon, where all three of these interests intersect, Turkey, Iran, and France. But, um, those are, so those are the armed conflicts I see Turkey potentially getting into. There'll be titanic struggles, and will determine the future and the fate of the entire Middle East. And should Turkey prevail, then they will become a superpower in their own right. But for now, we'll just have to content ourselves with watching these smaller micro-conflicts and the diplomatic maneuvering that they engage in for the time being. Uh, and those are, luckily for us, still very interesting to watch. There's never a boring day in geopolitics. But now, we get to the big boy. The big boy that I've been skirting around so that I don't spoil too much of it. Because this, this is what people are going to be talking about for the next couple weeks. And I, I, ironically enough, you know, I'll just say this. I'm pretty sure like half of my notes are like outdated now. Because <laughs> I, I put the finishing touches on them yesterday. Uh, and all of this was relevant yesterday at 11 o'clock at night when I put the finishing touches on them. The title of this is The Siege of Kabul. That, that, that's the title of it. Um, so we'll just go through this and you'll see the dilemma that I've run into with how rapid these developments have gone by. So the Taliban now control Afghanistan's fourth largest city. They are now basically laying siege to the capital city, Kabul. Not a regional capital, the capital. Again, that was the situation as of 11 o'clock p.m. yesterday. Just hours before my recording of today's episode, the capital city was surrendered, and the evacuations uh, at the airbase that the United States is still operating on, um, and the airport, I should say, the evacuations there have devolved into what can only be described as a very big mess. The president of Afghanistan, of the Afghan government, I should say, has fled the country. He's gone to Tajikistan, reportedly. Um, and I have in my notes that if the, the Taliban take the city, Kabul, and well, I, I guess I, yeah, I put in my notes, I should really say when they take it. And I said that because it didn't look like the Taliban was going to be stopped. And we know now that they were not, in fact, stopped at all because they now control the city. And I said the civil war in Afghanistan would basically be over if they took the city. And lo and behold, we can see today the civil war is basically over. The government has capitulated. Um, the Taliban had, before this, near full control of the countryside. And I talked over the last few episodes about how they locked down the country by securing the borders. Um, I had seen, over the course of the last couple of weeks, some maps that showed sort of a, on a provincial level how much progress the Taliban had made. It was in, like, three different colors. One color was um, Taliban. The second color was Afghan government, the third color was contested, 
and every day that would go by, they would the map would be more in the Taliban color, less in Taliban cover. Uh, a whole bunch of the country would be contested, and then you had like three plotches, three plotches of Afghan government. Now you have zero. <laughs> you have zero for the Afghan government. Um, and again, all of this was relevant yesterday at 11, an hour before midnight. So that sort of gives you an idea of how fast things have developed since 11, 12 hours ago, just 12 hours ago. It's incredible. Um, and at that point, all that was left were the central regions of the country, which was where Kabul and other major cities were. Um, and I said in my notes, um, if, if that was the case, can we even, if the Taliban basically controlled everything except for a number of cities in the center of the country, could we really even refer to the Afghan government as the Afghan government? Could we? Uh, the answer for myself was no. <laughs> and I started referring to them as the U.S.-backed forces. That's what I demoted them to for the notes of this episode. Um, but now, they <laughs> they aren't even the U.S.-backed forces anymore. They're, they're the non-existent forces is what they've become. Very, it's incredible. 12 hours makes such a big difference. Um, the Taliban also, over the course of the last couple of weeks, have flatly rejected any prospect of a power-sharing agreement between them and the U.S.-backed forces, what used to be the U.S.-backed forces in Afghanistan. Oh, I wonder why they would say something so hurtful. Maybe it's because they were winning. <laughs> maybe it's because they were two steps away from the Capitol's uh, building. Uh, I I can't imagine why they would do this, but goodness i mean at least they decided to negotiate with the u.s backed afghan forces for the peaceful surrender of kabul which ultimately ended up happening the city was surrendered peacefully um for the most part anyway pretty sure there were there were probably pockets of resistance but the city was spared the fighting um and i saw this coming not the ultimatum for kabul or even the agreement to surrender it peacefully. I didn't see that coming, alright? But what I mean is that uh, I highly doubted that they would ever agree to a power-sharing agreement. And the rationale that I had behind that was that they were winning. Why? They were winning. Why, why, would, why would they agree to share power when they're winning? And they can get all the power and everyone else just has to suck it up. I could not understand for the life of me why all these foreign countries were stepping in and saying, Pat, you need you need to do the uh, a power sharing agreement. You need to uh, peace in Afghanistan. It's like, well, then they'll, they'll be peace, all right. They'll just be in control of the country and everyone else is either, they're going to lose. That's, that's what's going to happen. The Afghan quote unquote government is going to lose and Taliban is going to be in charge. That That's how you're going to get peace. That's how you're going to get... That's the power sharing agreement right there. The Taliban will share the power with the Taliban. And that's... I saw that coming from 5,000 miles away, or however far away Illinois is from Afghanistan. 
But only, yeah, I mean, who who couldn't see that coming? Apparently, the people trying to negotiate it didn't. I did. Why would they share power? It's like, ugh. This. I swear the people in charge of these agreements have no clue how geopolitics, not even geopolitics, they have no clue on like common sense. Why would they, why would they share power when they're kicking ass, kicking the ass of the people you're asking them to share power with, with no signs of slowing down, with no indication that the people that they're at that point bullying were going to be able to fight them back, like... Why would they ever share power with them when they can just continue to bully them and win the Civil War? I didn't see it at all. And I guess the Taliban didn't either. Um, goodness. The U.S., in light of this, moved 3,000 troops into Afghanistan. Um, and this, this followed, this followed... A greatly ramped up bombing campaign that the US military engaged in for like the last two weeks of this fighting um, but the astonishing thing that I noted about that bombing campaign because it was a pretty pretty moderate in size and by that I mean uh, it wasn't like super duper huge but it wasn't like minuscule either so it was like moderate but the thing I noted about it was that one, the Taliban had suffered, uh, observably, they had suffered no significant reduction in their fighting capability. And number two, the U.S.-backed forces in Afghanistan had seen from it no significant incre increase in their fighting capabilities either. So the Taliban didn't lose fighting capability. And the U.S.-backed forces didn't gain any fighting capability. And that is truly incredible. They, the Taliban just blitzkrieged. They just blitzed the entire capital city, the entire capital region. Because the other cities didn't surrender so easily, uh, the large cities surrounding the capital. But now they have the capital and all those other cities. And that's truly incredible. Uh, we really are witnessing history. Um, this is going to be talked about for some years to come. This is going to be this is going to be another uh, Vietnam moment for us right now here in the United States because apparently one wasn't enough. We had to have two, but um, it's really wild. Uh, having covered the having covered the sudden, what should I say? the sudden ramping up of that war because it was going on for 20 years but being able to cover the withdrawal of the United States and the increase in the violence that pursued after the original withdrawal date people talk about oh how oh we are, we're going to be leaving on September 11th we're leaving on September 11th uh, people forgot very quickly we were supposed to be gone in May we were supposed to be gone in May um, but instead, we stayed. I complained about it. I said, why don't you just take the W? Because at that point, the Biden administration was already struggling a little bit. Um, so just getting out of Afghanistan would have been a 
huge win in and of itself. Like the Trump administration set him up for the W. And I'm just like, take the W. We'll all be happy when we get out of this place. But they decided to stay till September 11th. And now this mess, just a month before September 11th, where the Taliban has won the war. I thought that they were going to win like a couple weeks or maybe even a couple months after the full withdrawal of U.S. troops. Um, and that was the trajectory that it looked like we were on for. Like, it wouldn't take that much longer after the U.S. was gone for the Taliban to win. That's, I, I, I knew they were going to win. But wow. The blitz. The, I, I'm, I, everyone's speechless. Everyone is, everyone I've watched on this topic is just like speechless. They have no words to describe what went down and how fast they've been able to do all this. It's incredible. And if you've listened to me, you know that I have hyped these people up at every turn. Like, oh yeah, they're gonna they're gonna do it. They're gonna win. You know, they they fought. They they're gonna win. Every time I bring them up, I'm like, yeah, they're gonna win. You know, maybe they'll have a little bit of trouble here, but they're gonna win. I know they're gonna win. It's probably not even gonna take them that long. They're going to win. Even saying, even me believing all of that, I wasn't expecting them to pull this off over the last week and basically win the war this fast. Like, the the withdrawal date is still a month away. It's still a month away, and they've won the war already. Like, literally yesterday, when I was putting the finishing touches on this ending segment... Where I was talking about the Taliban. I went over this news piece. I think it was Al Jazeera. I saw the headline and it, it basically read the Taliban leaders say we've won the war. The war is over. And I'm like, well, I, I wouldn't say all that, you know. It's let's not let's not get too crazy here. Let's not let's not get too excited. But um I guess they knew more than I did because they won the war. <laughs> they won the war hours later. Hours later, I, I'm speechless. I really can't stress this enough. Twelve hours ago, the situation was so different. <laughs> it, I mean, we all knew they were going to win, those of us who were paying attention anyway. We all knew they were going to win, but we thought it was going to be uh, in a couple weeks, you know. Maybe a little bit after the United States leaves. Maybe maybe there's going to be a little bit more resistance when the United States is gone. But after that, it'll, they'll win and they'll have control of the country. A couple weeks after the U.S. is gone, they won the war in hours. It's ridiculous. It's so jarring, too, because, like, oh, man. Like, ah, I have no, I have no words. I have no words. It's crazy. It's just so crazy. I was even after all that hyping up that I did, all that endless confidence that I had that they were gonna win. I did not see this coming, and that is absolutely wild. Goodness gracious! But I'll I'll stop uh, re- getting repetitive. Well, I'll stop before it gets repetitive, because uh, I'll I'll just sit here repeating those exact words i'm speechless i wasn't expecting this i could do that all all day because it's true 
and I'm still bewildered by it. But I'm not going to do that because I've said everything that I need to say, and I can say that um, off off the air. I can say that off the air. Um, but good man, that is wild. But that is as wild as it is. That is all I have for today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world, as you can see, is changing. It is changing, folks. But we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you have been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, Servus.